take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we're going to be covering chapter 11. Uh, John chapter 11. And as we look into this, um, I've titled this, The Gauntlet Thrown Down. Uh, because if there was ever any doubt about who Jesus was or the power that he had on this earth, today he throws the gauntlet down. People have to now reckon with the fact that he has power beyond anything uh, that the world had seen up to that point. Um, and, and it starts with a family that is going through a dark time, and every family must face dark times eventually. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were loved by Jesus. They had hosted him uh, and his disciples on many different occasions. You see, they were kind of the home base. When Jesus was in Jerusalem ministering around in that area, they lived about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So they were a place that Jesus typically went to. Um, and, and in fact, we know uh, a little bit about Mary and Martha before we even get into the story of their brother having passed away. You see, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we're told about a time that Jesus was at Mary and Martha's house. It doesn't even really mention Lazarus a whole lot in that story. But what we see is that Jesus is there and he's teaching and there is this really big crowd. And, and Martha, one of the sisters, is busy serving everybody. You, you, you know the type. She's, she's around and she's, she's preparing food. She's making sure everybody has whatever they need. She's always around doing whatever that needs to be done. And then the scripture tells us that Mary was just sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to what he had to say. And so Martha actually complains to Jesus, you know, shouldn't my sister be up and helping me serve? And, and Jesus tells her that at this particular time, Mary has chosen the better part. So we get a little bit of an example of, of the personalities of the two. Um, because Martha is, is very practical, she's very task-oriented, she is going about doing what she feels that she needs to do. While Mary is more relational, and, and she kind of has a, just a, a slower personality one that wants to sit and take everything in. And so while Martha is up doing things, Mary is sitting um, and experiencing the world as it is. And so we also know, not only were Mary and Martha known to us through Scripture, but Mary and Martha would have been known uh, to the audience that John was writing to. Their, their experiences, the things that they had went through. Uh, now this is a story, this raising of Lazarus that isn't in the other Gospels. And so this would have been new information about someone that the early church would have known about. They would have known the story of, of Mary and Martha and, and the serving and things like that. They would have also known of Mary's devotion uh, to Jesus when he was being buried and all the things that went through. Uh, we'll see in the passage that, that it, it highlights the fact that, just so you know, this is the Mary that, that anointed Jesus and things like that. And so we know that, that the early church would have known about Mary and Martha. And so this story would have been information that they would have really wanted to see and it's kind of like if there's somebody that you have some connection to or that you know and you hear something about them that you didn't hear before, you can almost experience it with them. So the first century readers reading this, when John writes it to them, it would have been a very intense uh, emotional sort of chapter for them to go through. And so it would have been something that people could have connected to then. But I really believe that we too can connect to this story even to this day. Uh, I think it's still very powerful. I believe that it's timeless, and I certainly believe that it has a message for us. Um, this family's dark time will show us the faithful love and blinding glory of God that is best understood in times of trouble. 
You know, the truth is, we can see the beauty of a sunrise nearly every morning. Uh, we can see the beauty of a sunset nearly every day. Sometimes there's cloud cover, but not always. But every now and then, a storm rolls through, and we see the power and the terrible glory of God come through in that. And that's what these hard times are like. Is They don't happen all the time, but when they do happen, there is a different way to view the glory and the power and the majesty of God. And that is something uh, that we hope to see this morning as we get into this passage. Now, the sermon in a sentence is this. Jesus breathes hope and life into any situation, no matter how desperate it may seem. And certainly, we're going to be looking at a very desperate thing as we go into this. Spoiler alert, Lazarus is going to die, at least temporarily. And so you have Mary and Martha grieving their brother, but yet reaching out to Jesus. And that is kind of the background or the setting um, for this story. So let's read it. Uh, it's the whole chapter, uh, John chapter 11, verse 1 through verse 57. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, some translations say Didymus, uh, said to his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And, she went, and when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard, hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. For from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come in, uh, to, to feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Okay, 
So let's get into this, and first we're going to see a dead friend, because that's what Lazarus was, a friend uh, to Jesus, and he, he dies. Now, alternately, um, in this passage, it tells us that, that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, um, and, and it says that he loved them like brothers, like brothers and sisters, that kind of very deep, friendly love. And then it also uses the divine word for love, uh, which in the Greek is agape, meaning that he loved them unconditionally. So Jesus loved them both as friends, as the relationship that they had on this earth, and he loved them as their God. And so when we see this, this is powerful. So our passage picks up a, a few short months after Jesus gave sight to the man born blind and subsequently left Jerusalem because of the response of the Pharisees. So at the end of the last chapter, it says that Jesus went into an area where John the Baptist had previously ministered. And so Jesus was teaching and working signs as he usually does. And the people recognized Jesus from the teaching of John the Baptist. And so that area is known as Perea. Uh, and it's, that ministry is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Um, that ministry that, which is recorded in the Gospel of Luke happened between the time that Jesus gave sight to the man born blind and the time that he raised Lazarus from the dead. So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were dear friends of Jesus, and it's likely that he had stayed at their home uh, any time he was ministering in Jerusalem. We know of a time, uh, or a couple of times, but it's likely that that was just his typical landing spot when he came to Jerusalem, because he didn't stay in the city, and, and it wasn't because he was hiding from the Pharisees, uh, but it was not his time to be arrested. It was not his time to be executed or anything like that, so typically he would stay outside of the city um, and also, uh, they would have been known to John's audience um, as heroes of the young faith. So John's writing around 90 A.D. So Jesus would have been you know, crucified about 30 A.D. So we're looking at 60 years later. And so by this point, the, the people that had active roles in the lives of Jesus, those are the people that, that, that young Christians would have been able to relate to. So, so they see Jesus and they know him as God. But the people that were around believing, the people that were around obeying when Jesus was on this earth, they would have been like heroes of the faith, people to look up to. And Mary was one of those, certainly, Mary and Martha both. Um, but the people would not have known this story, or it doesn't seem like they would have known this story until John was actually telling it to them. So Lazarus had been sick for some time, and when the sisters reached the end of their ability, they sent for Jesus. It seems like probably the sickness was some kind of fever or some other kind of sickness like that that would have put him in bed and he would have stayed in bed for longer and longer periods of time. And obviously they would have tried to help him any way they could, but when they reached the end of their own abilities, that's when they reached out for Jesus. And for all intents and purposes, Mary and Martha prayed to Jesus, and in response, they received that dreaded answer to prayer, wait. Now, we can handle yeses and nos. Um, we can handle a lot of things, but wait is very, very difficult. Now, as we go through this passage, there are a whole lot of rabbit trails you can chase that the text doesn't give you any kind of help with. So why did Jesus wait? Well, there's a couple of things that are obvious, but there's other things that are not. And people go down all these rabbit trails talking about why Jesus waited. We're not going to go into that. Um, but the one thing I will say is that he tells his disciples that all of this is happening for the glory of God and so that the Son himself may be glorified. And so here's what we know. The miracle of Jesus is for the glory of God. People saw the work and the action of God, the power of God. That's the glory of God. And the religious leaders' response at the end of the chapter, their response to this miracle leads to the glorification of the Son. 
Now, ordinarily we think of glorification as lifting up in a positive way, but when Jesus refers to his glorification, he's referring to his crucifixion. And so for him, the glory of God is the work of God, and it is the miracle or the sign that was done, but for him, the glorification of the Son is leading him to the cross. And we are now getting very, very close to the end, and in fact, the, the final Passover, the, the week of Jesus' execution, that is, that is talked about at the end of this chapter, so we're right there at that point and so Jesus is 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 he is aware that this event that what he is about to do will trigger those ending events so it will trigger his glorification which again is not lifting up in a positive manner being worshiped or celebrated at that moment it is about his crucifixion so that's what he's thinking about now um for for the the chronology of it just to help we think that Jesus was roughly two days' journey away from Bethany. And so when the, when the messenger reaches Jesus and tells him about the grave condition of Lazarus, Jesus waits two days, then travels two days. But when he gets there, he finds out that Lazarus has been dead four days, which means that when the messenger got there, Lazarus was likely dying that day. And so it wasn't like Jesus could have gotten, I mean, well, he could have, but under normal human means, he couldn't have gotten to Lazarus before he died anyway. Um, now, when he did delay, it's likely that his disciples thought that he was being cautious because of the threats that were on his life from the Pharisees. It probably made sense to them. He receives this news. He receives sad news. Um, but it, it, it seems like to the disciples, well, this is the right thing to do. They're, they're trying to kill you. You need to stay. Um, and so this would explain their strong reaction when he does eventually announce that they are going to Bethany. Um, the way that it reads, it's like they're trying to convince him or to talk him out of going there. They say, you know, are you ready to die now? Because it was just now that they were trying to kill you. Are you really ready to die? Um, and, and, and so, in, in effect... Um, what he says, when, when he, say, he turns to them and says, are there not 12 hours in the day? Um, what he's saying is that he is walking in the will of the Father and he cannot stumble. So that's what he's saying. If, if you're walking in the daylight, you're not going to stumble. But if you're walking in dark, you are going to stumble. And so what he's saying is if he is in the will of God when he's walking, God's not going to let him stumble. He always trusted God to protect him until that hour. So he knew that if this was a work that he had to do, he was going to be able to come in and do this work and God was going to protect him. He says those that walk in the darkness, or, or in other words, those that walk outside of the will of God, they have reason to fear. This is a principle that Jesus taught, and it's definitely something that we can put into our lives as well. Walking in the will of God is the safest place to be. When we are with God, doing what he has called us to do, we are safe. But if we venture off of his path and we step out of the will, that's when we do have a reason to fear. So you might ask, does a Christian have a reason to fear? The only time is if we're not in the will of God. So long as we're in the will of God, there's no reason to fear. Again, that doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen because in the very center of God's will, Jesus went to the cross. But it was God's appointed time. It was his design. And so that's why it was, it was the plan. It was what was, Jesus was expecting to happen. So to end the debate, Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus has died and that he is going to, a, going to do a greater sign than they have seen up to this point. So the reason that, that we think that it was a fever uh, that, that Lazarus had is because when Jesus said that, he is, that Lazarus has fallen asleep, they thought maybe when Jesus got new information, they say well, if he's sleeping that he's going to recover because that's a good sign when, when a person is able to restfully sleep after they've had a fever. That means that maybe the fever's breaking and that they can recover. So that's what they thought. So Jesus had to kind of simplify it for you. No, 
Lazarus, our friend, has died. And so that's what he tells them. And he says, and it's a good thing for you that I wasn't there. Indicating that if Jesus had have been there, yes, he would have healed Lazarus. But he wasn't there for, well, really only one reason. It wasn't God's will. And so because of that, when he does go, they're going to see a greater miracle. Had Jesus cured fevers before? Yes, probably in the hundreds, if not thousands. Had Jesus risen the, the dead, even the recently dead? Probably, yeah, definitely. We know of two cases. But this one's going to be different. So, although Jesus had raised the dead on at least two previous occasions, that, that's recorded in Scripture uh, at this point in his ministry, uh, the circumstances of this event will serve to strengthen the faith of the disciples. This is at the end of all the signs and wonders that he's going to do. And this one is greater than the others. So we know about uh, Jairus' daughter who had just passed. You know, Jesus was in a crowd. He was trying to get there. And, and they meet basically at the door and say that the little girl has passed. There's no need to trouble the master. Jesus goes in, tells her to get up, and she gets up and starts walking around. We also know about the, widow, the widow's son in the city of Nain, that, that he was raised from the dead. But this is different. Lazarus has been dead for four days, so this is going to be very, very different. Now, Thomas gives voice to what all the disciples were probably thinking when he indicates that they were all going to Jerusalem to die with Jesus. Probably all the disciples were saying, well... I guess this is it. This is how we die. We go back to Jerusalem. The Jews kill us. They kill Jesus. That's just the way of it. But he was the only one that said it. But what we see is that Jesus had a plan. He had a purpose. He was following God's will. So let's talk about prayer for just a minute because that really is what Mary and Martha sent to Jesus was a prayer. Lord, come and help us. And sometimes our prayers do not get more theologically sound or difficult or complex than that. It's believed that there are three possible answers to prayer. Yes, no, and wait. Now, we always hope for yes because we're asking for our will to be done. Lord, make this go my way. Make, make this happen the way that I want it to. And oftentimes it's not even selfish. I'm praying for what, you know, you know for my, my loved one or I'm praying for, you know, this major situation. But, but we're hoping the answer is yes because we've just said, Lord, will you, will you, will you agree to this and do this? But no is an answer that we can get as well. Now, we don't want the answer to be no, but at least we can understand that answer. No is an answer we can understand. We've been taught that since we were little. We know what no is. We don't like it, but we do know what it is. Um, both the sisters and the disciples were told to wait because Jesus knew that the Lord was going to do a mighty work. There are times in our lives when God tells us to wait. Um, when God tells us to wait, it's because He has something greater than we could ever ask or expect. When God tells us to wait, if we're asking for one thing, it's probably going to be that, but in a more miraculous and amazing way. And so Mary and Martha were asking, help our brother. And yes, they received that, but it was in a much more miraculous and just expansive way than what they could have imagined at that time. And so that's what we're seeing here, and that's what you need to realize in your prayer life. There are times you're going to ask God for something, and He's going to say yes, and there's going to be times that He's going to say no, and there's going to be other times where He says wait, and it's hard to tell between no and wait, but sometimes He makes us wait. And in that waiting, there is patience, but there needs to be endurance and strength and, and, and hope. But when he does what he does, it is amazing. And so I just wanted to give you that word of encouragement and, and looking at Mary and, and Martha and their prayer and seeing that God told them to wait. 
And when he got around to answering their prayer, it was something more than they could have ever imagined. Okay, so the next part, let's look at a living hope. We're going to be talking about basically from verse 17 and going forward where Jesus actually gets to Bethany. Um, the very first verse 17 says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been uh, in the tomb for four days. Um, when Jesus and his disciples come near Bethany, Martha, one of Lazarus' sisters, rush out to meet him. And so if, if you had read, just previously read Luke chapter 10 uh, and, and read about the story of Mary and Martha, you might would have expected Mary to be the one to rush out to meet Jesus, but instead it's actually um, Martha. We're familiar with busy Martha from the Gospel of Luke uh, where she rushed around as hostess while her sister Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. And it's really easy to imagine that even at this sad time, Martha would have been going around serving her guests and kind of working her way through her grief, which is a valid way to go through it, and a lot of people do it that way, and others sit and, and, and spend time in it. But when Martha speaks to Jesus, she is not rebuking him for his delay, instead expressing the faith that she has in him. She says, if you had been here, none of this would have happened. If you, if you had only been here, none of this would have happened. Now, Martha would have known the kind of threat that Jesus was under. She would have known the ministry that he had and the good that he was doing. So she wasn't rebuking him. She was just expressing, I believe that if you'd have been here, nothing would have happened. But I still believe God hears your prayers. God answers your prayers, whatever you ask of him. And the way that that, that, that question or that statement is, whatever you ask of him, she's not saying, ask him to bring Lazarus back. But she is saying, whatever you ask, God will answer that prayer. So, in fact, she expresses to Jesus that not only does she believe Jesus could have prevented this, but he also still could do something about it even after Lazarus' death. So she is expressing a continuing faith in Jesus. That's what she's doing. And Jesus certainly affirms her faith, but she believes that Jesus is only talking about the future resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, anybody that believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? And she says, yes, I believe that Lazarus will rise from the dead. I know that he will come back in the resurrection. I do believe that. Now, it's at this point, just because of the plot and how things are going, that we need to talk about the Sadducees for just a minute. We've been talking about the Pharisees, and their major gripe against Jesus is the fact that he has been doing miracles, performing miracles on the Sabbath. And so that's been the thing that they've been really upset about. The Sadducees had power in the Sanhedrin, and, and, and the chief priest was a Sadducee, and many of those that were within his uh, group of advisors and whatnot, they were also Sadducees. One thing about them is they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. It's all they believed in. And they did not believe in the resurrection. And, and so if you, if you think about, if you think back to the, to the first five books of the Bible, um, there is some resurrection in there. There is some talk of that. But also there are angels and things like that. And they don't believe in those things. Um, and, and people say, well, that's how you remember the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Um, but when we think about them, they were a very powerful group, right? Um, they, they had a lot of authority, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. And here comes Jesus rolling into town with a dead friend that he's about to change the world. So, so that it, we need to know about them, and we need to know how this is going to challenge what they believe, and it's also going to challenge their seat of power. So very important here. And this is what I mean by throwing down the gauntlet. This is the point where he challenges the rest of the religious leaders in the room. Hey, what do you say about me? Because my actions and, and what God does through me speaks for itself. So Jesus tells Martha that even though Lazarus has died, he still has life because of his faith in Christ. 
Now, how many times have we comforted one another with those words at a funeral or at the time of a lost loved one? We know that they're in a better place. We know that, we, we, we know that they're no longer suffering. We know that they will live again. We say it so much that it might seem cliche, but cliches become cliches oftentimes because they're true. The reality is, for a believer, what death means, if you looked it up in a dictionary, what death means is simply never true for Christians. And it certainly was not true for Lazarus because, yes, his physical body had stopped to function in the way that it was supposed to, but he wasn't dead, and Jesus was going to prove that with his actions. Now, we, we need to actually read this one more time. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. This is in verse 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus made a, a, a dogmatic statement. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? And, Mary, and Martha's answer was this. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, she didn't repeat all the things that Jesus said, but she affirmed that she believed everything about Jesus. Maybe she needed a minute to process everything, but she made a statement of faith. When you think about the statement of faith, statements of faith that you see in the Gospels, you, the, the one that kind of sticks out is, is Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I want, I want to mention to you that Peter was having a great day when that happened. Or at least it wasn't terrible. There were some other statements of faith people were having where they had just experienced the power of God and they made a statement of faith. It was the day that Thomas, he saw Jesus. He had been claiming that he needed to, to, to feel the wounds and he needed to see the scars. But when he saw Jesus, he fell down and said, You are the Lord. That was a good day. Martha was not having a good day. If you want to talk in the, in the concept of walking on the mountaintops or walking in the valley, she was in the valley. And so, Martha, her response is the most powerful confession of faith recorded in the Gospels. Because in her despair, Martha still believed in the power and the faithfulness of Jesus. She believed, even in that darkest of times, and so that's why I say sometimes we see God's glory in the most terrible of times. She was in a dark time. She had lost her brother. She was in that time of grieving, in that time of mourning, and in that darkness she still saw Jesus as the answer to every problem that she has and every need that she has. And so Martha gave this incredibly powerful statement of faith. And it's something that we all need to remember because we will go through those same challenging times We'll go through those times where everything in the world tells us to doubt God and question Him and question what He's going to do or what He can do or what He will do. But I'm telling you, He is still God. So this, this episode strengthened her faith. It got her back on task. It got her going where she needed to go. So she returns to Mary and privately tells her that Jesus is calling for her. And so Mary responds just as we expected she would. She runs out to meet Jesus and she falls at His feet. But that's where the good news ends. Mary, in Mary, we see the ugly side of grief because she does not express any of the hope that her sister Martha had. So she says, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. But she doesn't finish it with, 
but still, you know, and, and what, whatever. She, she could have said it a little differently, but she didn't extend that hope that Martha had extended. And, and with Mary, we see a, a, a sadness and we see a grief as if she has stayed in that grief and as, as, she has, as she has let herself go into that grief. And so we have Martha running out to meet Jesus. We have Mary sitting with the grievers and spending time in that grief. And those are two different ways. One way is hope, one way is faith, and one way is having been defeated. So when we look at this, Mary runs up to Jesus, uh, and, and, and when she came to where Jesus was, is verse 32, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Now, I want you to notice in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That language, um, whether, it's, whether it's in like the way that Greek was used outside of the Bible or whether it's used in the way that, that it was used in the Bible, that language indicates that Jesus was upset at her response. He was troubled. He didn't like her response. He was displeased. It, it actually means kind of an exasperation, kind of a, a feeling with him. And if you follow on, not only there was he uh, upset and greatly troubled. He says, where have you laid him? Lord, come see. Jesus wept. So Jesus, uh, so you said, how, see how he loved him. Uh, we're going to talk about 36 and 37 independently. Verse 38 says he was deeply moved again. Both times the same word there, deeply moved. Um, again, he came to the tomb. Uh, it was called a cave. A stone lay against it. So it almost seems like in this moment, Jesus sees the unbelief. He sees the fact that she is resigned to this hopeless state, and he's upset about it. And he doesn't like it. He doesn't, he doesn't scold her, he doesn't do anything like that, but he doesn't like what he sees. And so she has given in to her grief, uh, and it's taken her into the darkness. Mary and her family were obviously loved by many in Jerusalem, it seems like many of them came out, but they were also in that same despair. Jesus is troubled by this, but in Scolder, he says, take me to where he is, take me to Lazarus at this point. Now, verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible, uh, but it still speaks volumes, because in it we learn that Jesus enters our grief with us, even though he knows his happy plans for us. So think about this. One, he knows what he's already said. He's the resurrection. He's the life. Anyone that believes in him, though he may die, yet he still lives. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows the full plan of what's going to happen in this family and in this life. Yet he still entered into grief with this family. He still wept. And when it says Jesus wept, the, the, the most literal way to say that is Jesus burst into tears. He literally cried. Now, it doesn't mean wailing. He didn't raise up his voice and cry, but it means that, that, that he began to be overcome and, and tears began to, to just to, to roll out of his eyes. He was grieving with them. And I want to tell you that when you're going through a dark time, just because God knows the ending of it, and He knows that He has a good intention for it. Remember, we believe that all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. God knows that good. He knows that end. But when you're in the middle of it, and it is the time of grief, God's with you in that. And He feels that just as keenly and acutely as you do. He is not ignoring your grief. He is not, he is not putting it to the side because He knows something better is coming. He is in it with you. He is with you through that grief, through that hard time. That is the kind of thing that can keep us going. That is the kind of truth that will help us. So I know, maybe I'm the only one like it, but you know, at Children's Church, they always wanted you to come in and they wanted you to tell a verse that you had memorized. Well, this was always on my list because I could remember it. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It was easy for me to remember that verse. 
But little did I know how powerful that verse really is. Because in that verse we learn that God, even though He has the full perspective of everything that's going on, He still knows what we're going through and He is willing to go through that with us. When Jesus said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you, it meant even in these times, even in these dark and challenging times, He would never leave us and He would never forsake us. So the Jews did go through the range of responses that are typical for people who are confronted with Jesus. Um, you know, some, some people were moved um, by the God who, who dwelt among us and others will always express doubt in His goodness. But when I read verse 38... It almost seems like I hear echoes of Genesis chapter 3. So it says, For some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's almost as if if Jesus had been good enough, he would have been here and he would have kept Lazarus from dying. And think about Genesis chapter 3, where there's this question, if God was really good and He was really looking out for you, He wouldn't be trying to keep this knowledge away from you. He wouldn't be trying to keep this good thing away from you. And it's this same old seed of doubt that Satan plants in the minds of people where they basically start thinking, well, maybe God doesn't have my best in, in mind. Maybe He isn't totally good. It's this question that maybe, maybe God isn't thinking about my best. Maybe I know what's best for me more than God does. So, so that's that question. There's that seed of doubt there. And I believe it is a challenge to who God is. And I believe that it is what will affect Christians the most if we start trying to think that maybe God doesn't know His business or what it is that He's actually doing. It's a very big problem and it's something that we need to see if it's in our lives. If that seed of doubt is there, we need to get rid of it. The Jews respond the way that people typically do uh, when they doubt His goodness. Um, but we need to know, Jesus ignored this. Like He doesn't say anything about it, but John noted it because it was a powerful doubt. And so Jesus, He commands the stone to be taken away. And we see at least part of the reason um, for his delay. Now, obviously, Martha says, Lord, he's been dead four days. There's going to be an odor. And so usually people were buried on the day they died. Um, so Jairus' daughter and the widow's son of Nain would have been recently dead when Jesus raised them. But Lazarus had been dead long enough that the odor of decomposition was present. So what we're seeing here, and, and there was also another thing why four days made a difference. Um, there were Jews, not necessarily Mary and Martha, and certainly not Jesus, but there were Jews who believed that the spirit of a body lingered around it for three days, waiting for an opportunity to go back in. After that third day, the person was truly dead. This happened on the fourth day. So even if there were some being superstitious, believing that the spirit could come back in, it was too long. And so there was this, this odor, and we see a little bit of, of why this would have happened. Not that Jesus was just waiting to make sure everybody knew that, that he was dead, but when it happens, what we see is God's providence because at this point, there's not anything anybody can do. There are no parlor tricks. There's nothing that can make this look like anything other than a miracle of the first order. Jesus is about to raise a man from the dead who has already begun to decompose. That is powerful. Those that had followed Jesus had come to expect the implausible, uh, but it was downright unbelievable that Lazarus could be brought back to life. This was a new step. This was further than anything that they had seen Jesus do, to do. And, you know, really when you think about it, if I start kind of stretching my imagination, this is one of those rabbit trails that I said I wasn't going to go down, but let's just walk just a little bit down it, see the rabbit, and then turn around. So think about what Jesus has done. He's commanded the, the wind and the waves to be still. That seems like a pretty big deal to me. He's fed the 5,000. There's some other things that Jesus has done, and so you start comparing power and different things like that. So, but here's the thing. 
If Jesus hadn't commanded it to stop raining, would it eventually stop raining? Probably. If Jesus hadn't fed those 5,000 people, could they have eventually found food? Most likely. But if Jesus doesn't intervene in the life of Lazarus, does he ever come back to life on this earth? Absolutely not. This is a different one. This one is powerful. Not that the others aren't, but this one is different. It's on a whole different level because nothing could have ever happened to have stopped. Now, we've seen the storm clouds gather. All of you have seen it, especially if you're working outside and you're hoping it rains so you can quit and go in. You see all those storm clouds coming, and somebody out there is going to say, well, let's just work until it starts raining. And heaven forbid it never stops, starts raining. You're working out there, and it's cloudy, and you can see thunder. You smell rain, but it never rains. We've seen that. And so we know the weather can do weird things. And maybe people could say, well, maybe Jesus just happened to say it at right the right moment before it was going to clear up. Maybe so. I've heard people try to talk away the the feeding of the 5,000. They've said, well, you know, they felt guilty. The one little boy gave his lunch and people started feeling guilty. They started producing their lunches. And before you know it, they had fed all the 5,000. Now, I don't believe any of that. But what I will say is this. There is no plausible explanation for making a man that's been dead for four days get up out of the tomb and walk. There is no other way other than the glory and the power of God. Jesus knew. When he starts praying, he knows that the Father has heard him. He knew what the Father would do. So his prayer was completely for the benefit of those around him. He's saying, God, I know you hear me. I know that you always listen to me, and I know what you're going to do. But I want people to know that this is coming from you and not from me. So that's what that was about, because people might accuse Jesus of doing some kind of some kind of weird thing. Remember, this is a very superstitious, very spiritual time. People could have thought of things like necromancy, things like that, but that wasn't what this was. This was the power of God come down from heaven into the life of a man named Lazarus who got up and walked after he'd been dead for four days. So with the divine authority over life and death, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus didn't need Jesus hollering at him. Lazarus was coming from somewhere where the voice of Jesus could have been a whisper and he would have heard it. The loud voice was for everyone around. Jesus wanted to make sure everybody around heard that He, in the position and in the power, holding the authority of God, commanded a dead man to walk, and the dead man obeyed. Lazarus obeyed the command of Jesus, walking out in his grave clothes in full view of the gathered crowds. Now, likely, it says that his legs and arms were bound, but that doesn't necessarily mean bound together. So don't think of Lazarus in like a sack race coming out of the tomb. He was probably, his legs were probably freed, but, but they were bound. And so he was wrapped in that way. So he come out, and, and he probably didn't have much of a means to actually take that stuff off of himself. That's why he tells the people around, loose him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Um, just to show that this man had completely come out of the grave and back into life. So, again, another kind of aside here. We know that resurrection is when someone is raised to never die again. We know that Lazarus did indeed die once again. Uh, so this was a resuscitation. Just like Jairus' daughter, just like the widow uh, in the city of Nain, Lazarus was resuscitated. He was brought back to life. He would die again. Another rabbit trail, we're just going to walk by this one, just glance down it and move on. Where was Lazarus during those four days? The Bible doesn't tell us, so I'm not going to comment, but it's fun to think about. So while you're eating lunch, eventually when I finally get finished, think about that. Where did Lazarus go for four days and what was he doing? 
Okay, we're closer to the end than you might think. Um, this stands as the greatest sign Jesus performed before his own resurrection, and there was only one good reaction, only one good reaction. If this man has the power of God to raise the dead, then he truly is the Son of God come to save the world. That's the reaction that we're looking for. That's what we're expecting to see. So in verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed on him. That's the good reaction. That's the one you're looking for. But there were others. Look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is not good. So, unfortunately, there were some who stood in the presence of the power of God, yet turned away to walk in the power of Satan. That's what they wanted to do. So they went back to the enemies of Jesus. Now, it's believed that most of the people gathered here were genuinely grieving with Mary and Martha and were probably sympathetic to Jesus and what he had done. But you have to understand that the Pharisees had had a campaign out. If you see Jesus, tell us. You see something, say something, whatever. You know, you've heard that kind of business before. So if, they, if you see Jesus, report him back to us. And so some went scampering right back to the Pharisees reporting what Jesus had done which brought forth this counsel. So we need to know that. The sign of Lazarus still speaks to us today because there is no situation too far gone for Jesus. That's another thing that sounds cliche. It's another thing that pe preachers are going to say. It's another thing from a lot of different stories in the Bible you can get to, but I want you to hear it because I want you to know that Jesus really is with us. And no matter what situation we face, even the most serious of situations, death, disease, desperation, depression, financial ruin, wherever you find yourself, Jesus is there and the situation is not too far gone. I always grew up in church and you know one of the things that, that you would hear every now and then, just every now and then, uh, you, you would hear them say, well, and I don't hear this as much anymore. Maybe, maybe I'll still hear it. But they'd say, well, they had cancer. They went in. They did surgery. They cut him open, saw it was too far gone, and just sewed him back up. And I can just hear those old ladies in church saying they just sewed him back up. And that was it. That was the end of the book. But, you know, a couple of times I would hear later that person didn't have cancer anymore. I would hear later that God had did something in that life. And what I want to tell you is it doesn't matter what mankind thinks. No matter what the learned people in this world say is the end of things, God determines when the end is. God makes that determination for every aspect of your life. From the simple and mundane things that you face every day to the biggest problems you'll ever have in your life, He is there and no situation is too far gone for Him. He provides hope and life even in our darkest times. In fact, that's when His light shines the brightest. That's when it shines the brightest is when we're in those dark times. We must have faith. Because doubt of God leads to disobedience towards God. When we begin to doubt Him, that's when we begin to walk away from Him. That's the first sin. And it leads to others. One sin begats another sin begats another sin. When we start doubting Him, when we start letting our lives be marked by fear, that's when we begin to doubt Him. So real quickly, let's look at a necessary evil here. So at the conclusion of this passage, we see that the Pharisees have joined with the Sadducees um, of the, the chief priests to decide how best to rid themselves of Jesus. 
And this is one of those really uncommon alliances. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't agree. The Pharisees believed in the entire Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. The Sadducees only part of it. They would have always been kind of bitter rivals about things like that. But in this moment, they joined together. They joined together against Jesus, and we begin to see this. And the disturbing thing is, uh, they don't doubt Jesus they don't doubt his signs. They are simply too caught up in their fear of the Romans uh, to take joy in the fact that the Messiah has arrived. They said, if we let this keep going, everybody's going to believe. Not because they thought people were being deceived, but because Jesus was doing signs that only God can do. Now, what they believed is that the Romans would see this as revolutionary. And, and really, if you go back to the what Jews actually thought the Messiah was going to be, Jews actually thought Jesus was going to be a military political leader. So they believed that Jesus was going to bring the wrath of Rome down upon them, and they would be destroyed. They would lose their place. They would lose their nation. That's what they believed. And so when they attack against Jesus, they're not attacking against him because they believe him to be a blasphemer. They're attacking against him because they believe he's the Messiah. They killed him because he is what they thought he was. That's why they killed Jesus. That's why they went after Jesus. So we need to think about that. That there, are pe there were people who lived by the book, studied the book, memorized the book, and everything about it. They were as deeply religious as anybody, much more committed than most Christians are today, and yet they killed Jesus because He was the Messiah. Not because they believed he, Him to be a blasphemer. Not because they, they thought that He was something else. They killed Him to, in their mind so that He couldn't fulfill His mission. Fortunately, they were wrong. His mission was to die. His mission was to die, not just for them, but for all of us. And so that's the picture. I will tell you this, the true enemies of God know who He is. There's people that don't know who God is, but they're not the real enemies. The true enemies of God know who He is. So think about Satan. Satan knows who Jesus is. And, and these, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they knew who God was, um, but they want something different than His will for the world. Heaven forbid there be people who think they know better than God what needs to happen in this world, but there are people. There have always been, and there always will be. So Caiaphas has no idea how true his thoughts were when he says that it's better that one man should die for the many uh, than for the many to perish. So Caiaphas makes this prophecy. He's going to have to die so that the nation doesn't die. And, and, and John even says, he, he prophesied, he, he was prophesying, and he didn't even know it, that, that Jesus not only is going to die for this nation, but for all nations to gather all the children of God that have been scattered. God was actively working in these evil hearts to glorify His Son so that all nations could be saved. And remember, glorifying the Son means that He be crucified, that He be lifted up and, and, and killed for our crimes and for our sins and then raised from the dead. So God's working in the hearts of even these evil men. He didn't have to soften their hearts. Their hard hearts were still fulfilling the will of God. And we have to understand something about the wisdom and the power of God that He could do that. So all the powers of Jerusalem were committed to having Jesus killed, so he did not walk openly among them again until the Passion Week. So Jesus knew when his time was, or, or he knew that God knew when his time was, and so when he needed to be walking openly, he did. But when he didn't, he stayed away. So that's why we have this passage about him going to Ephraim. And so let's finish this up. God uses the pain, sorrow, suffering, and even the evil hearts of men to display his glory to those who believe in him. Look for God. What in this year? We, we've, in Vacation Bible School, we have these God sightings. And um, we tell the kids, look for God. Look what He's doing. Look what He's going to do. And let me tell you, in your life, if you're watching, you will have God sightings. You will know that He is active. He can use good things. He can use painful things. 
He can even use the evil hearts of men to show you His glory because He's in control. He is mightier than anybody really gives Him credit for and He will certainly make His plan and His will known. Once we see Him in His glory, we know that we always have a hope that endures through the trouble in this world. And so that's what I want to leave you with. If you, if you see one thing from Lazarus, what I want you to really see is that there is never a reason to give up hope. There's never a reason. Is God going to raise your loved one back from the dead? He can. Don't know that He will. There was a reason for raising Lazarus. Think about how many people died in the areas of Galilee and, Galilee and Judea during Jesus' lifetime. He raised one from the dead in that miraculous manner. So we think about that and we know that He didn't raise everybody. He doesn't raise everybody. But what He does say with that act is that it's never too late and never ever give up hope. He is there. He is working. And He has a plan. And I assure you that whatever the best possible outcome that you can imagine, God has a better one. So don't give up on Him. Hang on to hope. Believe in Him and wait and see what He will do. Because sometimes you're going to pray and He's going to say yes. Sometimes you're going to pray He's going to say no. And when he says wait, although we don't want to hear that, I want you to believe and I want you to know that he's got something better than what you asked for. He's got that in store for you in the future. So let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and I pray above all else that each of us this morning have had the only good response you can possibly have to Jesus. I pray that we have believed on him that we have believed that He is your Son, that He was sent to this earth to die for our sins, and He was resurrected to show us the way to glory. I pray that we all believe that. And if there is someone here that doesn't, Father, today be the day that they believe. But Father, also as I come here today, I believe that I'm talking to a whole bunch of folks that really do believe in Jesus Christ. But Lord, we all go through trials. We go through times that are so difficult that we don't know how we will stand. I pray that this morning you renew our hope. You give us the strength that we need, not from ourselves, but from you. Let us just overcome any doubt or fear that we might have and trust in you. And then we know that you will carry us along. Just as Jesus stood at the grave of Lazarus and wept, even though he knew what he was about to do, I ask that you remind us that even though you know how you will resolve our problems, you're still going through it with us. We are not and never will be alone. That is a promise that you've given us. And I pray that we are always faithful to remember it and to believe it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.